Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning I invite you again to take your Bibles and turn with me to the end of Zechariah as we finish up our study this morning in this Old Testament prophet. You know, throughout this book of Zechariah, the Lord has repeatedly called Israel and us to repent, to repent of sin, to repent of half-hearted religious ritual, and turn to the Lord with our whole hearts. But Zechariah has always followed these calls of repentance with glorious promises of what the Lord is doing and what He is about to do, with visions of the end of the story that ground our hope and confidence in God as He guarantees that He is at work now to bring about the salvation and cleansing of His people. And we've seen one vision after another, one promise after another that add to this mural of hope, if you will. And this morning we arrive at chapter 14, in which Zechariah describes the culmination of this hope, the final day which will usher in the completion of all his promises. Here we have a precious chapter of God's Word to strengthen us this morning. And I hope you will follow along with me as we read Zechariah chapter 14. Hear God's word. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and another half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of my mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah, And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter." And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. 
Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be ascribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Here's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which you gave to Israel and you give now to us. I pray that you would help us to understand your word and that you would strengthen us by your word this morning. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The common saying tells us that a picture is worth a thousand words. But sometimes a picture is worth more than a thousand words. You know those situations where you're trying to explain something to someone and it doesn't matter how many words you use, you just give up and say, you know what, let me just show you. And we try to give them a picture when words fail. In many ways, I think that is what Zechariah is doing this morning. Is in almost every verse, Zechariah is pulling images from the Old Testament to communicate to Israel the full glory of God's plan of redemption. Sort of like parents who would go through pictures of their child's life and pull out representative pictures to make a collage, maybe for their graduation party. Only Greg and Zechariah here, he's not making a collage of what has already happened, but rather a a collage, a, a summary of what is still to come in God's plans for his people. Of course, pictures are only helpful if you know what the pictures are showing you. And that maybe is the challenge for us this morning. Can we understand the pictures that Zechariah gives us? The reformer Martin Luther had a great appreciation for the book of Zechariah. But he struggled to know what to do with this final chapter. His commentary on chapter 14 begins, Here in this chapter, I give up, for I do not know what the prophet is talking about. And certainly this is a challenging passage when we read these pictures, but with some work I think we will find that this chapter is a rich vision of God's great plan of redemption. And to begin, we have to remember that all of this, again, takes place on that day, on the great day of the Lord. 
And we've said all throughout these final chapters that the day of the Lord ends up happening in two stages. Christ comes once to begin the final day, the last days with his death and resurrection. And Christ will come again to complete and finally fulfill all of his promises when he comes again. And so we've seen through these chapters how in many ways they have been fulfilled by Christ or they are being fulfilled now. And yet, we're also waiting for them to be fully fulfilled when Christ comes again. I think we can say that with this chapter as well. And yet, at the same time, we should have seen that throughout these chapters, there is also a sense of historical progression through them. We began in chapter 9 as God promised to protect Israel until a king would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And then the Lord promised God's redemption of his people even as they would reject the shepherd that he would send. And then we find in chapters 12 and 13 that after that rejection, after they had pierced and struck the shepherd, God would pour out his spirit to bring about repentance and cleansing and salvation for his people. And so there is a sense of progression and emphasis through these chapters as well. And so when we come to chapter 14... While again, Christ's first coming is still the key to everything here, and we will see how God is bringing these things to pass. The emphasis here is on the completion of God's plans and promises, and we will see how Christ's second coming will fully fulfill the words that we read. In this chapter, God is describing this last day when he returns in the final battle that will end history and usher in the fulfillment of all of his promises. And specifically here, God describes the arrival of the day of the Lord. He describes God's kingdom established on that day. And he describes the final judgment and redemption that will take place. So let's look at each of these. We begin with the arrival of the day of the Lord in verses 1 through 5. And Zechariah drops us right into the middle of the action here. We don't get a lot of prelude or, or description of characters or building tension. We just find that immediately we're looking on a scene of warfare as all the nations gather to attack God's people around Jerusalem. And we find that the city is taken and Zechariah describes a scene of defeat. Houses are plundered. The women are raped. Possessions are divided as spoil. Some are taken into exile and some left desolate in the city, or left in the desolate city. This is the scene on earth when the Lord suddenly appears in verse 3. Just when the nations appear to be gloating in victory and all hope seems to be lost for God's people, the Lord shows up for the great battle to fight for his people and to bring the final day of judgment and salvation. And in verse 4, Zechariah shows the Lord arriving on the Mount of Olives, opening up a valley so that God's people can flee like they did in the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, escaping their captors to meet the Lord who comes with all of his holy ones to fight for his people. And again, Zechariah pulls on images from the Old Testament. We remember how God divided an ocean in the Red Sea, to make a way of escape when his people were hemmed in by Pharaoh's army. And in the same way, God says he will open a path of escape by dividing the Mount of Olives in half. Now, as we've said throughout these chapters, 
their interpreters of, of these chapters divide into to two camps between those who would believe that this scene will literally play out on the Mount of Olives around the physical city of Jerusalem and those who would see Jerusalem as representing God's people who are attacked throughout the world by those seeking to destroy God's people. Maybe they would think of verses like Hebrews 12, 22 that say that all those who come to faith in Christ have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God in the heavenly Jerusalem. And I would lean towards this second interpretation and see this verse as the picture of God's sudden arrival to rescue all of his people in the midst of suffering, those at Jerusalem and those throughout the world. But either way you take this, either interpretation, the verses tell us that what God has told us again and again in Scripture is true. That even as the nations will attack God's people all throughout history, His return on the last day will come to bring an end to that warfare in the midst of climactic suffering for God's people. Maybe you think of Daniel chapter 11 or Ezekiel chapter 38 or Revelation 20, which all picture this final battle when the Lord will come and bring the warfare to an end in the midst of his people as they are being persecuted and attacked. Now maybe this raises some questions in our minds. I mean, if God is going to come in a great day of salvation, why in the world does he wait until after his people are suffering and persecuted? Why doesn't he come in the day of salvation before his people are defeated or are persecuted? But this is the pattern throughout all Scripture, that God shows up for salvation after he has taken his people through suffering and persecution. Jesus did not come to heal Lazarus before he died. Rather, he allowed Lazarus to die and his and his sisters to grieve, and then he showed up to bring resurrection in life. Hebrews tells us that God's people are sawn in two, stoned to death, flogged and chained because of their faith in God, and yet they're called to faith to persevere with their eyes fixed on resurrection life, which is to come. And God's word consistently tells us that these things, these sufferings for God's people come about to fulfill His purposes and show His glory and refine His people as gold is refined. Because as God's Word tells us, we who are united to Jesus should expect to walk the same path that Jesus walked through suffering and persecution first and then to resurrection and glory. And so, even as we look to that final day, the question for us, for all of God's church, is are we ready to suffer for our faith? Because that is the expected pattern that God's people will face throughout history and climactically at the end. Just this week, one of our supported missionaries was telling about his nephew, a believer in a Muslim country, who was telling people about Jesus, and even in recent months has seen Muslims come to Christ. He, in recent weeks, was threatened with death, beaten, had legal charges filed against him, had to hide his Bibles and flee to another city. This is the pattern that God's people expect. You know, we who are believers in America have had to suffer fairly little. 
maybe some awkwardness in conversation or maybe some difficult family conflicts over our faith, but this limit to our suffering will likely not be true forever because God's word tells us that his people will suffer. And so the question for us is, are we ready and willing to suffer for the name of Christ and for his truth? And are we preparing our children and our grandchildren to suffer for the name of Christ? And note that I don't ask this question in a moment of despair or in a tone of despair, but out of hope, because our Savior says that that's the path he walked and that's the path we will walk, and it's the path that we walk in order to come to resurrection. And so this question is one of hope. It's one that looks to the pattern God tells his people to expect. And the question for us is if we're ready. And so this is the description of the arrival of the day of the Lord in the midst of suffering when the Lord shows up to rescue his people. But next look at verses 6 through 11, which describe the kingdom of God established. And these verses describe nothing less than the new creation that God has promised when he establishes his kingdom on the last day. And you see this description in four different ways. Verses 6 to 7 tell us that the very nature of creation itself will be altered. The Hebrew here is difficult. It might say that cold and frost are no more, or it might say that the stars and planets are no more. But either way, it's clear that day and night in the typical pattern of creation are are no longer. But a unique day, a new created order comes to be in which the light of the Lord will always shine. And maybe your minds turn forward to Revelation 21, where Revelation picks up on these verses and says that the city the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb and its gates will never be shut for there will be night no more there. Then verse 8 tells us that rivers of living water will flow out from Jerusalem to east and to the west and shall never cease. The river of living water is a rich picture that's used throughout Scripture Maybe you think of Ezekiel, who used this image in Ezekiel 47, saying that a river would flow from the temple of the Lord and go out into creation that would flow month after month, bringing healing and life. Or maybe you think of Revelation, which picks up on the image that in the New Jerusalem, the river of the water of life would flow from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the city, yielding fruit in every month and healing the nations. Maybe you think of Jesus who told the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that he himself was the source of springs of living water which would well up in her. What a beautiful picture that living water flowing from the presence of God to heal and cleanse and bear fruit. What a beautiful picture of the promise that's offered to any who will come to Jesus Christ in faith. Those living waters began to flow with Christ. They flow now through history and they are the picture of God's work as he heals and cleanses the nations on that last day. Verse 9 then, thirdly, adds that the Lord will finally be installed in his rightful place. For now, while we know that Christ is the resurrected one and the king, this earth is still a war zone. It's still contested territory. 
and the spiritual battle that is taking place. But on that day, Psalm 2 will be finally and fully fulfilled, which where God declares, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And all throughout the earth on that day will behold the Lord and will echo that great Old Testament confession from Deuteronomy, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The kingdom of God, which began in Christ's death and resurrection, will arrive completely fulfilling our prayer that we pray every week, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And then in verses 10 and 11, the new Jerusalem is described, raised up above the plains on high ground, inhabited, dwelling secure forever, and never again will a decree of destruction go out against it. Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 2, as well as later in the book, describes this Jerusalem multiple times, saying that God will lift up the mountain of the house of the Lord so that all may see it and come to it to know the Lord, and weeping will be heard no more in the city. And Revelation picks up on the same image when John says that the Spirit showed him a high mountain on which was the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and that the Lord was in it and nothing unclean would ever enter it. And so what we should see in these verses is God describes the kingdom of God finally established on that day is that Zechariah is gathering these images from throughout the Old Testament from its other prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Psalms and other places. And then Revelation in turn is gathering these images from Zechariah to to give our minds and our hearts this picture, this vision of the glory and the security of our salvation and our eternal home in the heavenly Jerusalem forever with the Lord. And so here we have the kingdom of God established. But thirdly then, Zechariah ends by describing the result of the arrival of God's kingdom. And he describes this result in verses 12 through 21. And we can summarize the result this way, that every person in all the world and throughout all history will face one of two realities, judgment or salvation. And that result will depend on their faith in Christ. But Zechariah begins by describing judgment on the nations who reject the Lord. And again, he draws on images from all throughout the Old Testament. He describes the Lord's judgment as plagues, hearkening back to God's plagues against Egypt. He describes it as rotting flesh, picking up on the language of God's curses from Deuteronomy 28. He describes it as a day of panic, such that the hand of one will be turned against another, and they will kill one another, bringing to mind God's defeat of the Midianites Midianites, at the hands of Gideon and his band of 300 when their hands were turned against one another, and they killed one another. And he uses the picture of drought or no rain, which God often sent as judgment to punish sin. These verses are something like a brief encyclopedia entry of types of punishment, all stacked up to communicate God's final judgment against those who oppose Him and who refuse to worship Him. And these verses remind us that God's judgment is no light thing, but the terror of the power of God turned against those who refuse Him 
in just punishment. And again, we say, God has warned us ahead of time. God has told us ahead of time of the consequences for refusing to worship Him in faith. So the question is, will we heed that warning? But it will also be a day of salvation. When God's kingdom is established, all God's promises to Israel will be fully fulfilled. But we find out here in Zechariah 14 that this eternal worship of the Lord is not just a promise made to Israel, but many from all the nations will come and be joined with Israel in eternal worship. And here this eternal worship is described as going up year after year to worship the king and keep the feast of booths. Now the feast of booths in the Old Testament, if you remember, was one of the three great feasts that Israel kept along with the Passover and the Feast of Weeks. But the Feast of Booths was particularly a fall festival celebrating the harvest that God brought, the abundance of God's blessing in the harvest season. But this feast also looked back to the time of wilderness wandering and recognized that God had been faithful to bring His people through the wilderness and into the promised land where they could receive these blessings. And so this feast is a perfect picture of the eternal worship where God's people will celebrate His faithfulness and bringing them through the wandering wilderness in this world and into our eternal home as well as the final harvest of the nations that the Lord will gather. And so what a great reminder of what the Old Testament has repeatedly promised, that the Messiah will be faithful to save His faithful remnant from Israel, but he will also save many from all the nations, from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And they will come together and join in the everlasting worship to the glory of our God. But the question is, how do people from all of the nations come to worship the Lord? And the answer is by hearing the gospel and putting their faith in Christ. And Romans 10 asks, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And as a church, one of the great questions we must answer is, how are we working now to fulfill the great commission so that on that final day, many from all the nations will gather to worship the Lord forever? You know, we have missionaries arriving in Africa to spend the next two decades of their life translating the Bible. We have students going to East Asia and the Middle East, living and taking classes and teaching English. We have missionaries doing business in different countries. We have others sharing the gospel in London and in Germany and Asia and throughout the world. We have members who are tutoring children and teaching English in our own building week after week to many from nations of the world. And I hope that you will pray for these missionaries and pray for those who are declaring Christ. But I also hope that you will consider going. Our church wants to send some from our congregation. And so young people or young couples or older couples, we have missionaries of a variety of skills and a variety of ages. And so will you consider going to be part of bringing in the harvest of the nations That on this last day, the throng of those who will go up to worship the Lord will be great from all the nations. But Zechariah reserves the peak in many ways of glory for the last two verses, verses 20 and 21. If you look at those verses, you will remember that throughout the pages of Scripture, God has been working relentlessly for one goal, 
And that goal is that his people would be holy. That his people would be holy that they might dwell with him. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And it's that holiness brought to completion that Zechariah describes in these final verses. He describes this new Jerusalem, this final completion of God's plan of redemption, such that in this new creation, the holiness will be so thorough that even the bells hanging on the harness of a horse will be inscribed with holy to the Lord. And you remember that that phrase was reserved for the garments of the high priest to represent his purity before the Lord in the Old Testament. And, and even the bowls all throughout, the pots and bowls throughout Jerusalem and Judah will all be holy enough, pure enough to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And so we have this picture of all this new city, all the gathering of God's people, fully holy such that every item down to the bowls used for people's breakfast are holy enough to be in the presence of the Lord. And then Zechariah adds that there will no longer be any traitor, that's T-R-A-D-E-R, or Canaanite, as some translations have it, in the city. See, when the Israelites returned to Jerusalem after the exile, Canaanite became a word to refer to anyone who was ungodly, and particularly of merchants who were out for profit rather than worship or obedience. And Zechariah says that there will be no hint of ungodliness anywhere in the house of the Lord on that day. And maybe you remember Jesus when he stepped into Jerusalem and he came to the temple and with a whip drove out the merchants, the traders who were in the temple and began to fulfill this verse. And we look now to the final day when God will bring it to pass in completion. Over and over, we've seen this emphasis in Haggai and Zechariah, but it bears repeating one more time. God's great plan and purpose for his people is that we might be holy. And so, brothers and sisters, Christ died to secure our holiness. And God promises here that he will accomplish and complete our holiness on the last day. And so for anyone who sees their remaining sin, this should be cause for hope and rejoicing. But it should also be a call and a motivation to pursue holiness now with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength in anticipation of this last day. And so we have here this wonderful picture of the great day of the Lord. But as we come to the end of this chapter, this chapter should bring us infinite encouragement Because though things may seem confusing in our world now or disappointing or despairing, thanks to this chapter, as Paul Harvey used to say, now we know the rest of the story. We know that God will fulfill all his promises. We know that Christ will arrive at the end of history and bring all of it to its glorious end, yes, through warfare and suffering, but to completion and fulfillment of all of his promises. It's a guarantee. Author Alan Jacobs, in his most recent book on why to read classic literature, argues that we should all strive for what he calls temporal bandwidth. And he defines temporal bandwidth as the width of our present He says, the more you dwell in the past and in the future, the thicker your bandwidth will be as a person. 
and the more solid a person you become. On the contrary, he says, the more focused we are on today and what's happening now, the more we're focused on every fresh news article, every swing of hope and despair, every current cultural idea, every new vote count, the more we are focused on now, the more we will be blown off our feet like a leaf in the wind. But always have in mind the past and the future, and we will stand in solid hope. As Jacobs puts it, having temporal bandwidth in the, ta- in the past and the future is balm for our agitated souls. And so maybe our emotions are up and down and anxieties are despairs. Maybe you're suffering from PESD, post-election stress disorder. It is temporal bandwidth, knowing how God has worked in history and how he is going to act in history to bring about the end of this story that he has promised and guaranteed in Christ. It is knowing that that grounds us so that we can be solid people living in faith, hope, and love. And so I end with these words from Rick Phillips, who sums up this chapter and all of Zechariah this way. At the end of a history that is centered on Christ and finds its end in His glory, our Savior Jesus is established without question, without denial, without opposition as Lord of all. He is the reigning King who is not only worthy, but who actually receives the homage of an entire subdued creation. This is the message of the whole Bible. It's the end of all of history. And it's the message of Zechariah 14 as well. It's a future that is guaranteed by God's word and promise. And it's our solid grounding and hope this morning. Thanks be to God. Father, how we thank you that you have given us this word. That you have told us ahead of time of where things are headed. We know the end of the story. We know, Father, that judgment is coming for all who have not entrusted themselves to Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so I pray that if there is anyone here today or watching today who does not know Christ as their Savior, that they would trust Him today. And yet we have also been promised that for all who are in Christ, this is our future. Glorious, eternal security, dwelling in completed holiness through the work of God's Spirit. What a hope. Stir our hearts, Lord. Encourage us to pursue holiness and to stand confident in your promises today and this week and forever. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.